Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my guest this week is Colin Molliner, Principal Security Engineer at Cruise, building uh, securing self-driving cars. Uh, Colin, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Talk a little bit about uh, your work at Cruise, just to set the stage for what you're doing now. Um, basically, I'm one of the people on the product security side. And in this case, our team is only like responsible for the actual vehicle, like not for other parts of the product. Yeah, when you say do. you're responsible, you're responsible for securing for every part of securing a vehicle? Yes, like our team is responsible and has ownership of all of the security relevant things for the vehicle. Right, and for the folks listening on this call, it, it should be noted. Colin works on a team with some pretty significant names in security research, uh, Charlie Miller, Chris Velasek. So you are really, really at an interesting place, at an interesting intersection of where technology is headed and how, you know, computing is basically embedded itself into all aspects of our lives. And we'll get into the car research and, and some of the stuff later on. But I want to go all the way back, Colin. You were a fascinating guy. I looked over your resume and you go way back in this embedded device space. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this tech space? Not even security, because you you were there doing this kind of research prior to even a creation of a security industry. Yeah, so I basically started out with computers because my dad was working at one of the major Unix companies back in the day, like um, Data General. So I think the, one of the major competitors with DEC at the time, so... When I was a really small kid, like he took me to like the office and let me play with Unix machines. And that's also how I got access at home to like computers at a young age. Yeah. So that's, and basically like we all, the, our first computer was so slow. It would only run like very boring games. So I started looking, uh, looking at the computer and seeing what else I can do and started like learning programming and, and it basically took off from there. One of the fascinating things about you is that you were writing software for in back in Germany for embedded device, like pre-Android days, back in the days of Palm OS. Uh, for the folks listening, Palm OS was the precursor to smartphones in the days when... It's so, it's so amusing, Colin. I went to your website and you actually have a page dedicated to Palm OS and describing what it is and what it does. And it was written for another time and it was just so amusing and fascinating to me. Uh, how did you get yourself hooked into this mobile space and, and specifically got into security research? So basically, I, I did some security research or like, like just security stuff, but even a little bit before then, or before I got really into Palmer's. Um, but I mean, like, there was nothing to publish about. This was like learning and being a script kitty. But basically, it came to like writing software for Palm OS devices because I was like, oh, I really want to have like a small computer I can carry around with and like have my own software on. So like, I really looked for what what's like what's like the best thing to get at the time, and it was basically the Palm organizers. And then I just like started writing games and other applications, and it. Did a little bit like of try like researchy things we would call it today, but I was just trying to see what I can do. So I guess very early on I figured out a way to change the your device name, which was also like the registration like name if you like would purchase apps. And I figured out how like change it so you could basically use other people's registration keys. So things like things like that. And for the people who don't know, like back in the day, like in ninety. 798 i think palm palm also had like an app store kind of thing which was not run by the company but but by a third party which basically worked the same way you put you uploaded your app they sold it for you they took i think 25 or 30 percent 
And it was like the same thing you have today, just like, yeah, in the late Yeah, 90s. but it's interesting. There was no connectivity at the time. So you had to you had to tether your Palm Pilot to your laptop and do a thing called syncing. Yes. And that would move your data from your PC to the Palm Pilot before you could unplug or to the Palm OS device, whatever it was. I used to have a Palm Trio because I was fancy at the time when it came out with touchscreen, um, touchscreen interface at the time. But uh, back then, uh, security of those devices were not a concept, right? Like the idea of that data running around that those devices running around with private data was not an issue at the time so no. your your foray into tinkering with this was most more most along the lines of you know how can i get apps better how can i play games how can i modify things yeah and just like having having like your little computer thing with you and i actually for some time in the early day i often carried like my sync cable to like hook it up to stuff and you also had like infrared, so you could like actually have your 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 Palm Pilot talk to like your mobile phone, which at that time often had like infrared. So you could even get like a slow like modem connection and things like that, or send SMS from your Palm Pilot via um, via infrared to your phone and things like that. It was like just this like was really fun to like explore and play around with things. Before, yeah, before there was like internet on everything. Right, there was that, that there was that beaming feature, but uh, that might have been the precursor to bluetooth right because when you're talking about a pre-bluetooth time as well right yeah like infrared like basically just like send like say your your business card yeah we used to be in business cards back and forth right yeah exactly and there and um that's also like so when as soon as bluetooth came along and like started also like to look into that like more that was more like a for, for security kind of things and i built like palm applications Basically, in the early day, there was like no, um, none of the phones really had like security around anything. So like you could just walk around and like send stuff to random phones that had Bluetooth enabled. So I built a Palm app that would like just like you could walk around like Frankfurt, send like send like a joke to everybody which today is like really being like stuff like that today is of course being massively abused by by people but back in the day that was just like nobody would it was just not a thing it was like tech people were like playing around with the technology yeah, was that was that right around the time Bluetooth became av- uh, available? Wi-Fi had started to become ubiquitous. Connectivity had started coming to devices away from platforms. Was that right around the time where your mind k- kicked into security? Because I know you were also very active on some of the Bluetooth security research uh, yeah. groups. Um, yeah, so in, I guess... Was it the late, maybe it was like 99, I think it was like more like early, very early 2000, like 2000, 2001, 2002-ish when I started getting into Bluetooth security. And actually that's how I met like one of, one of my best friends now, um, Martin Hereford, like, uh, um, who lives in like Austria. Um, but he's actually also German. But yeah, that's like, yeah, we just like did research, talked about uh, a lot online and then became good friends doing Bluetooth security research. And he did way more interesting stuff in the Bluetooth area than I did. Do you remember Trifonite? Yes, of course. That was like our, our little like security group, which is basically just like focusing on on Bluetooth security. But that's like, that's like this almost... This is early 2000s, right? Yeah, it's almost 20 years ago now, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember, I actually remember reading Trifonite documentation and some of the work that you guys were doing. How big was that group? And is there like a, an equivalent of what that time felt like uh, when you were just wet, getting your feet wet in security research? The, the group was, let's see, 
I think we were at some point like six people who were like kind of affiliated and like Martin and Adam Laurie and Marcel Holtman, they like did a lot of things together while I was still like in school. So like I couldn't really like go off to like at any point to like do conferences and stuff like that. I don't know, like compared to today, I don't know if there's. Yeah, one of the things about your career is really interesting to me is how you've been able to straddle two worlds, academia and security research. And even on the security research side, straddle two worlds there between offense and defense. Because a lot of your work is offensive focused, but a lot of a lot of the tools and a lot of the things you leave behind are defensive in nature. Can you talk a little bit about, was that a challenge for you at all? Just, you know, because you can go in the academic route in security research and it takes you into a, a rabbit hole. It's completely different from someone who would take a practitioner route. Uh, but you've been able to do both in a sense. Can you talk a little bit about why you you opted to go the academic route and I think you uh, you went all the way up to a PhD, correct? Yeah. So I would say a lot going way back to the past, like I since when I started like com- doing computer stuff, there was like no internet. There was basically you buy books and maybe very limited like BBS, BBS access. And so I spent a lot of time programming. So like, I think I just got myself like a pretty decent, even like programming education, even before I went to like undergrad. And then I just always did my projects. What always, um, anything I always did was had like something to do with programming. It's like, I just liked it and it was like a good tool. And so like my, and my way then to, to academia was basically, I was interested in security, but at the time, like in Germany, like 2004-ish, 2003-2004, there was not really much interesting things going on, as I could tell. And I was also like, I was still want to get like a master's. And um, that's basically how I started, really started in academia. And I went to like work with this very well-known professor in, in Santa Barbara, Giovanni Vigna. There, basically, I learned... I learned like really what it means to like like academic research and that you can have a lot of fun doing it and can like have top-notch results and he was really good at like motivating people and like getting the best out of you and that really like got me like hook, uh, hooked on academia even after I graduated with my master's I really wanted to go back to do like software development and engineering so actually why? I went why why not go the offensive route and um... oh, I was just like wanted to do something different again so like while I was doing my master's I did like a lot of um, offensive research on like pocket PC phones and also like of course it was 2004 to 6 so no iPhone no Android um, it was basically Pocket PC and Zimbian, like if you talk about smartphones. And that was super fun, but like still like the mobile space was really like people were like not super, not super interested in like. Right, because stuff. I remember back then we were still trying to, there was, I remember as a journalist writing articles about whether uh, mobile worms and Symbian based mobile viruses was actually a real thing or it was just an academic exercise that folks were proving and the whole mobile security industry felt entirely fake at the time. Yeah, I mean, for like virus stuff, I I totally would say the same. Also, I never, I, I don't like, I'm not a, a really like AV person like virus. I don't know that 
world super well, but I never have seen anything super real. But in terms of security, I mean, like one one part of like when I did my master's was basically build like building a nicely automated fuzzer that didn't even like touch the cell phone network to like basically fuzz MMS on 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 pocket PC phones. And yeah, we got actual remote um, code execution without like user interaction at all. So I think that part was actually showed where like the trend was going for like mobile but still mobile was not really a thing most people didn't have smartphones so right mobile became a thing when smartphones became easily available and then personal data started flowing between these devices you were first to the android game as well Uh, how did you get introduced to on the android working on the android operating system um so after my master's in in california i went back to germany i actually worked for a small embedded linux company who would make like basically what you now call like a a tablet but basically what year is this this is pre pre iphone right yes 2006 so i was working there so it was working there when like the i when the iphone came out and android came out and then so like i worked there for like maybe two years like just doing like anything and you do on an embedded linux system from writing user land application optimizing kernel drivers anything and a little bit security but like security didn't sell products at the time so basically no no security and then like and then basically how i got back into kind of security was um Thomas Lim invited me to speak at Ziscan about my my MMS research from the previous year. And what was the MSS? What was the MS, MMS research at the time? So, oh, so that was like what I did my part of like my masters. Basically, the, how I built how I built like this fuzzer to fuzz like the MMS, like this picture messaging, audio messaging stack on Pocket PC. That like in in two thousand six, I gave like a talk, my first and only DefCon talk. Isn't and it amusing that Charlie Miller would become famous later on for doing the same thing on iPhone devices? Uh, I mean, we, that's like you know we did that talk together, right? Yeah, yeah, the SM. But yeah, I bring that up because it, it's it was really instructive for me preparing for this podcast interview with you to see that you had been doing that stuff before the iPhone was even created. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I basically like I did. Well, I was not the first one, but like one of the very early people who like was digging into like smartphones, smartphone security, at least on the on mm-hmm. the public on the public level. Yeah, that's um, how we met. You came out to one of my SaaS conferences years ago and did a talk on Android, uh, yeah. Android or mobile. I don't remember what was the it was topic. Like and, it was like Android, yeah. Um, anyway, so like I basically, I went out to this conference, gave a talk and was like, oh yeah, security is like so much fun. Maybe I should like do security again. And then I found like basically I, I found... So wait, that, slow down, slow down, back up a second. How <laughs> did you get, how did you reach, how did you meet Tom Lin? How did you get that oh, invitation he, if you're not in security industry? Oh my, I guess he just like heard about the talk and then he wrote me an email and said like, hey, do you want to come and, and speak at, at Ziscan? And I was like, oh yeah, I can't really afford to fly there. And he's like, oh no, no, professional conferences work, like we pay all of your stuff and you give a talk and have a good time. Yeah, so basically that's that's how it happened. I was like, okay. I'm, let's let's do this and also that was like the conference um, i met like people uh, very famous people now at like i know like katie for example that's like she was there when she was still i guess working for microsoft and mm-hmm. i gave like a talk about microsoft um security stuff so yeah it was like yeah two, that was was it i think 2007 yeah and then and then um i guess 
the next early the next year 2008 i quit i quit my like embedded linux engineering job and like um, a job at like a german like security research like it's half like government like fraunhofer it's called one of the many fraunhofers i got a, a security position there um, and that's when you went full-time into just focused on security basically but like i i like didn't really like the the kind of projects they were doing there so but i was lucky like um this there was this professor who later became like the my phd advisor he was i guess building a new research lab basically focused on uh, on telecommunication security so like everything around phones phone networks a little bit of hardware stuff so he basically poached me from that job to become like a researcher in his lab and do a phd and that's that's how i basically got to like do a phd and that's how you ended up in the u.s at northeastern right no 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 so that was in berlin yeah and and then and so like I, after after i finished my phd I, I moved to like boston to like stay in academia and like do like a postdoc and i yeah and then what happened? I just like got I got like a little bit sick of like just research. I wanted to do more like applied things that have a little bit more impact, um, like long last, more like long lasting right. impact, and more like more engineering. And yeah, I, I I mean a lot of a lot of skills basically that that I, I think I learned in academia like are well, like are really good skills to have like in industry. Really, really transferable. I would say extremely. Like basically, just if you just like need to like tell other people like i have to convince people in a company what why a certain thing is a good thing to do and like that's basically what what you do in academia all the time you have them some research idea and then you write a paper and in the paper you have to be very convincing and very clear and understandable and that's basically one of the i think one of the really good really good things you learn that's like really immediately applicable to like working in industry or like that even becomes a requirement that becomes a requirement just being able to communicate and tell your story and tell uh, uh yeah. just just explain your your work but l- let me examine this for a second there's a there's a industry discussion ongoing about whether we should require degrees for entry level jobs in cybersecurity or whether we should require degrees at all in tech you were saying your skills were easily transferable yeah. do you have a uh, do you have a, an opinion on you know whether we put up that gate that uh, university degree gate for entry into i mean having 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 some background in computer science is probably not not a bad thing and maybe even to require but of course there's i've met some people and i guess over in my like i guess career so far which have like a high school degree and are like one of the best programmers i ever like read code from and it's like yeah it's like really hard i think the one advantage is like especially computer science or computer engineering has or like say software engineering is that you can buy a computer and if now like all of the documentation everything is freely available you can but still self-study you become extremely good so just saying you need a degree is maybe not super helpful, but... If you were advising the kids in high school today, you'll tell them it can't hurt to pursue some sort of university studies in. Yeah, I would say, like, at least an undergrad degree is probably not the, not a really waste of time. Unfortunately, in the US, of course, it's very expensive. I mean, that's, like, the one advantage in, in Europe, of course. Like, school is basically free, um, so you don't come out with, like, huge debt where you could, like, have gone to work before. Right. It's a different culture here in the US where you have to put yourself into $120,000 worth of death before you could come out and hope to, you know, land a career in something. Yeah. Uh, before we close the loop on mobile, since you're a guy who go all the way back to even 
pre-connectivity to today. I'm going to throw a couple of quick short burst questions at you, help the audience understand your thinking. iPhone or, or, or iOS or Android as a safe versus secure operating system, where is your head at? Uh, that's really hard. I now basically use an iPhone just because of the con- con- certain convenience. And I used to work a lot with Android, so I wanted to have like an iPhone in my private life so I don't think about work all the time. That's basically how I got to an iPhone. I mean, I if you if you buy an Android device, buy one from, I guess, Google, like a Pixel that can get like updates. How would you describe the state of, let's let's start with on, on, on the iOS side, how would you describe the state of security on iOS? Is it a phone that out of the box without any, in, in, in default state, is it a safe, secure uh, mobile operating system for general purpose use? I would say yes, but I'm also like a little bit like disconnected now from like what's really going on on like iOS versus Android, yeah. And like I think I think if you buy if you buy an iOS an iOS device or like a relatively well updated Android device, you're basically at the same stage of but security. Isn't that, but isn't that relatively updated Android device the problem? I mean, you have to get something. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like if you buy an Android device, get something like a Pixel where you have like updates all the time. Um, yeah, when you have a re- some sort of reliable flow of updates in a timely manner versus the old model of sitting around waiting for carriers to distribute. Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, that's, I, mean, that's, I think, one of the biggest um, hacks from Apple that they managed to, like, bypass carrier-branded um, firmware images. Right. But I think the, those times are also for, like, some of the major Android devices are just, like, a little bit gone. So that's that's good. A guy like you would have your pick of jobs in the industry. You know, we're, we're, we're in an industry where talent like yours are in short supply. You could get the pick of jobs uh, you could have. But you opted to go to cruise and work with those guys on um, automobile security. Talk a little bit about this shift, why you decided to go this route. What's the passion? What's the, you know, what's the excitement about doing research in this area? Uh, yeah, I would say for me, it was very easy. It's like, I like building Linux boxes. And I think that's like a known fact that there's a lot of Linux in those kind of, those kind of cars. And the team, the team was like the other major thing. So it's basically two parts, like bu- building, working on a really cool product that has ba- basically some technology I like to work with, with like a re- really motivated and smart people. I really like the the general mission of the company and like the, the product because I like, I like, I don't like driving myself a lot. And it's like, oh yeah, that's like kind of a fun thing to work on. Are we all going to be driving? Are we all going to be in self-driving cars in 20 years? I, I, I don't know. I hope I will, I will not have to drive anymore. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me switch gears because we are at the half hour mark and I wanted to ask you about firmware analyzer. Firmware analyzer is a tool that you built and, and you've been doing some public talks on it. Why did you create it? Basically the idea was, Okay, so we're building customized, uh, customized like firmware or like our own firmware for custom hardware or our own firmware for non-custom hardware. Basically, if if you're if you're like in charge of securing secure, securing firmware and you have more than one devices, you really want some automation. So basically, it was like, okay, what what can what can we do? to basically automate some part of my daily job away. So this was, a, this was actually a real-world project to automate part of your actual work. This is not an academic project that you oh, no. came up with. Okay. Oh, no, no. Like, so, 
this is actually like in use every day. Um, like we have automated services that runs, it runs like literally, like I say in the talk everywhere, like it runs in CI for a bunch of things. We have a lot of like automation server, or, like some automated server that we can submit stuff to and it will, part of it like will be running firmware analyzer. Firm, and firmware analyzer is basically, it, it, it's one of the main tasks, like preventing you to ship something that has things in it that you don't want to ship. And like, accident- so wait, wait, by default, by default, it's ship, it, by default, it checks, it, it allows you to check in an automated way for certain red flags and to spit out alerts based on certain, uh, yeah. certain so, set parameters, right? Okay, yeah, I, let me give you the like the two minute pitch. Basically, you say, okay, we have some piece of firmware and I want to model and you can model certain security properties. Say, you say, oh, in the production release, we don't want, for example, an SSH server to be on. And we want to have this one specific, like say public key for like firmware updates. And we want to make sure the file system doesn't contain those and those binaries and permissions on directories are set like this. And so basically you can model like the content, basically mostly the content of like your file system. So like which files are there, what's the file content, what are permissions? And there's various methods. Like you can say this file has to be a specific, like the specific content, just like give it like a a SHA-256 digest. And if the file is not that, does not have that content, you, you throw an error. Um, or you say this file should not exist or this file has to exist. Very so let me ask you this. Wait, wait, wait. Pre-firmware analyzer, what does your SDL process look like without this tool in the middle there doing this in an automated way? I mean, if you don't, like, I don't think people have, have like that kind of automation. I mean, you, what you can do, of course, you can have, after you build your firmware, you can have either like your internal, internal people like make an assessment of your devices. So it was have, previously it was just a bunch of manual checks that allowed allowed a lot of mistakes to happen. Like you can leave certain keys in there, stuff can go to production that's not meant for production that uh, yeah. just manual eyeballing cannot spot. Yeah. And I've built like a similar tool, like which was basically just like really stupid shell scripts that did something at a, at pre- a previous job where like, oh, we just make need to make sure like check certain kind of things, but it was not really like, a well thought out like automated tool where you had like a configuration like language and where you can um, have yeah very very could like not do arbitrary checks like now um and like that's it was like really helpful to like find very simple things and often it was just not even finding security issues but like just general problems that would that were maybe caused by security say say you have a say you're building an android device and um label label some files wrongly or like with like say an slinux policy or haven't labeled files something will not work while it's being tested and people will just go nuts because i say my process runs at this user the the the, this file is owned by this user why can't i read it why does it not work and even stuff like that where like basically security might cause some problems during testing and development the tool can also like help you with that because basically if you run the tool like say in ci at the end of like after the firmware is built you run the tool and says like this file this file and this file are maybe having a wrong label or no label and it just like helps you to basically figure out security things during your development process to to make it better because it doesn't help any every anybody if engineers like are just mad at the security people because certain things don't work 
because they want to have it work and you want to have it work so like it's just like helping with certain things like giving you some insights why might something might not work in addition to like finding actual security problems and another another feature which i'm like very happy about building is basically you can do a diff between two file systems say so the, the tool basically records everything about like a file uh, file system and say you're having you're you're in charge of the security of like something that's made by a third party or even you buy a product and you have access to the firmware and you just want to see hey what did the vendor change and didn't tell us um so you can also do like automated that also does like automated diffs it will tell you hey this file is new this file was removed this file was modified on oh, this file they only changed some permissions things like that so you can say you have an intake process for like say f- third-party firmwares you can very easily just see here are some changes um so that's um that's something i would like it's also really comes in like handy at some times and that really saves me and i guess people on my team like a lot of a lot of time sometimes because you don't have to manually figure out oh what is is what's the difference and like i published also a bunch of like config things like for example on for android where you can just extract like all of the version information like from an android update and you can very easily see oh this is actually version x so like it's it helps you a lot with like handling firmware and firmware security for either device the development process yeah and also just the security part. If you don't even develop, if you just get the firmware delivered to you, or yeah, that, no, you can run like, it through the. You can run it through. You can run a, a, a firmware delivered to you through the package and get your alerts and, and and find some basic things. It's also highly configurable, right? Yeah. So basically, that's like the one. So by the one thing, you basically have to configure it. Otherwise, this will do nothing. It's not not a vulnerability exactly. discovery tool. It's you have to like basically write a policy and write rules, and it will like. And those rules be applied, and you will get like the results from the rules by itself. It like doesn't doesn't do much, of course. It's not a blind discovery tool where you can just say, "Tell me everything about this." Right, right. And it's important to mention that you guys released it open source yeah. last August. Yeah. So yeah, it's completely open source, free to use. We we like we FW like FW Analyzer. Just Google FW Analyzer. You should find it. What has been the response like? Has there been any interesting use case that popped up that really surprised you? Um, no, I've been just like told privately by a bunch of people that they're gonna gonna use it bigger bigger companies what's next for you colin um uh, i know you're focused heavily on working with that team on reducing attack surface on self-driving cars you personally any new area of security research that interests you is there a, a trend that you're spotting that's really interesting um actually right now i'm not doing too much security stuff on the side i'm just like following everything that's happening like a little bit i'm still like a little bit interested in like mobile device security and i'm following what people are doing there and what's happened happening there just like a little bit um personally at the moment i'm like more into doing some some like embedded embedded um tinkering um where like build build like small embedded devices and 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 playing and playing with them and and building some interesting software for them but it's not it just has a security component but it's not like finding new bugs or um that's it's more like interested uh, interested in learning like really more about more, more about like really like embedded devices on a like really low level and there will be probably some blog posts about it on my personal blog 
Um, that was going to be my next question. When are you going to start blogging again about mobile security? You know, your personal blog used to be a favorite of mine. You used to you used to track talks, track new mobile security research, post a lot of links to things that I had never seen, and then you stop. And then yeah. your life gets in the way. But yeah, it's basic. I was like, oh, I'm not really doing. So you had one reader at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at at some point, I had like I think a lot of readers. Um, yeah, it was one of the more popular mobile security blogs. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully as things yeah, settle from, down. From, yeah, from what I heard, that like yeah, a lot of people I met at conference was like, "Hey, aren't, don't you have this blog?" And it's like, um, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm trying. Like, I tried a little bit to like blog about things here and there. Like this like Android this Android tablet I bought. Like, remove like some pre-installed malware. But I haven't found like um, a real a real big thing to to like blog about again. Um, well, I mean, there's like, always yeah. stuff. There's always stuff for Colin yeah. to say. I mean. Yeah, but one part is like I'm really like so happy and like fully engaged with like my day to day work. It's often like now in the evening. It's like yeah, exactly. I don't want to really do exactly. Um, I know it. I know this. Good. I'm doing this podcast yeah. in my own personal time uh, as a as a small side personal passion project. And you know how many times I'm like, oh my god, I don't feel like recording another security podcast after spending <laughs> all day looking at security things. Yeah. But at least it's a nice little distraction for me. Are you still in New York? Yeah, I'm still here in Brooklyn. Someone yeah. in your New York uh, security circles, you know, the Brooklyn scene there, gave me like some weird gossip that you're a big hamburger fan, hamburger connoisseur. Is this true or is there they pulling my legs? <laughs> no, this is more than true. <laughs> well, tell me about this hamburger fascination. Oh, and just like, who doesn't like a really good hamburger? And, That's it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I just like I'm like a big food person. I like to cook. I like to go and like eat good food. And a ham- like a really good hamburger is like a really, a really good, the best really of good, everything, right? Yeah, you have some, yeah, you know, some good meat and some lettuce and a good, a good potato bun, hopefully. Thank you very much, Colin. I appreciate the time. Hopefully, we'll get to do this podcast again uh, whenever you have a big talk or a big bit of security news too. Yeah, announce. thank you very much for having me, and hope you're well and stay safe, my friend. You too. Mm-hmm.